0: After having grown old, can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. and What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished when I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life indeed god did not send the son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him those who believe in him are not condemned but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only son of god this is the word of god for the people of god
1: this uh, worship series that we've titled "Fearless: The Courage to Question" uh, is based on the lectionary text uh, during Lent this year, which means uh, we are joining thousands of uh, Christian uh, churches around the globe that are looking at ver- very much the same scriptures uh, during during this season. Uh, some churches follow the lectionary year-round. Uh, we do not every uh, all the time, but uh, but from time to time we do. Uh, follow the lectionary, which we will be doing this Lent. Uh, Phil and I uh, discovered sort of this theme, Fearless, uh, the Courage to Question, on on the United Methodist Communications website, but we kind of did our own sort of questioning and we looked at all the text and we came up with our own series of questions, such as the one we have now today, which is, Am I Afraid to Die?, based on these these various texts. So uh, we'll be looking at this particular text with that question in mind. So let us turn to God in prayer. Dear Lord, we pray in these few moments together that we might kind of sit with you in Nicodemus and kind of relive that uh, conversation that was held in the middle of the night and help us to imagine you speaking to us the words that you spoke to him and help us to ponder what that means for us. What, What what are you saying? What, what did you say to him? What were the implications? But m- more importantly, what are the implications for us and for our lives today? So help us, Lord, to hear your words and and understand their meaning. Speak to us. Your servants are listening. Amen. Am I afraid to die? My My bet is that at some point every one of us here have, we've pondered that question to some degree or another. We've at least thought about death. Um, and maybe if we're young enough, we probably aren't thinking too much about our own death, but we, we see death around us. We see it in the news. And so this whole notion of being afraid to die is kind of maybe a more, more or less a human, human condition for many of us. I would like to suggest that that could have been Nicodemus's question when he met with Jesus that night. He didn't ask that question, and he didn't pose though, that question in those specific words. But I'm, I'm kind of thinking that deep down inside, this was kind of going around in his head. Perhaps, perhaps, if he was considering this question, he was simply afraid to ask it. John says that Nicodemus was a Pharisee in verse 1 of this third chapter of John. That means he was a learned man. That means he had studied the scriptures from a very young age. You don't just become a Pharisee without a lot of hard work, without theological training. He would have been considered a lawyer in his day, but the law for him uh, there, was, there was no distinction between secular law and, and, uh, and sacred law. It was all one and the same. And so his knowing the law was really knowing the scriptures. And as a Pharisee, he would very much have been in that sort of class. He would have been uh, a learned man. The Pharisees saw themselves as being kind of the keepers of the law, and that's why it was very important to them when someone seemed to be going outside the law to kind of draw them in. He's called a leader of the Jews, also in verse one, and many scholars believe that really what is being said about him is that he he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the uh, the highest uh, court in in the land for for Israel. It was a court that um, would sort of cast Judgment on people when they seemed to be kind of going astray from the law. It was part of that council, that that Sanhedrin, that sort of like our Supreme Court, that was there to protect the law, to make sure that uh, the law wasn't bent out of shape and that people obeyed the law as they were supposed to do. He, um, in that position, being on the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus' defense according according to John. In the seventh chapter, we, we find that as they're discussing Jesus, as they're debating what they're going to do about this rebel rouser, he comes to their, his defense and says, hey, wait, you know, he, he ought to have a right to ha- have his say. That we, sh-. In essence, uh, Nicodemus was saying we shouldn't have some clandestine trial of Jesus as we learn later actually happens. So, there's something within Nicodemus that draws him to Jesus. There's something that kind of makes him feel like maybe there's something to this this man. Uh, we learn later in the nineteenth chapter of John that that he comes with Joseph of Arimathea after Jesus dies on the cross, he comes with with Joseph and helps take the body of Jesus down from the cross and carries him to the tomb where Jesus is eventually laid. So again, we don't know if Nicodemus ever truly became a disciple of Jesus, but what we do see in these encounters is that Nicodemus was drawn toward Jesus. There was something that he was not his enemy, in other words. There, there was something that, that made him want to know more. And that is, of course, what happens here in this third chapter when he comes to Jesus. He comes to him by night. Why does he come at night? He's, he's, a, he's a high-powered lawyer on the Sanhedrin. He should come in the daytime. He, he has nothing to be uh, embarrassed about. Why does he come at night? Is he afraid that somehow something will happen to him that he will he will somehow be ostracized by his colleagues? Did he not want to be seen? Is that why he came in the dark? Or as maybe I have already suggested he was embarrassed. He didn't have all the answers in other words. And yet he's supposed to be the man that has all the answers. And so maybe he doesn't want to appear not to know. Maybe he's building up courage to, um, you know, courage to question the assumptions that he grew up with. You know, he, he grew up with the understanding that the Messiah was to be a, kind of a warrior king that was going to come in and, and chase out all the Roman occupiers. He grew up thinking that the, the Messiah was to be an answer man, to fix it, fix it all, fix all the problems in the world. And here comes a man that says, in fact, he's the son of God. Maybe he's beginning to question his own faith, his own understanding of what and who the Messiah would be. Maybe this Jesus who eats with sinners, who, who heals the sick, who talks about love, maybe, maybe he could be the Messiah. Maybe that's why Nicodemus comes in the middle of the night. Now, the what we find is that he, he doesn't really want to talk about what's deep down inside. Maybe he wants to, but he, he's afraid to. And so what he does is he kind of redirects the conversation from the very beginning. He begins by flattering Jesus. He calls him rabbi in, in verse two. He says to Jesus that, well, you're a teacher who has come from God. He even, he even says, no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. All of this in verse 2. Very first words out of his mouth to Jesus. He's just piling it on. You're a teacher, you're a rabbi, you, you do wonderful signs, and you've obviously, you're obviously coming from God. Whether or not Nicodemus believed those words, he's using those words to keep Jesus away from him. He wants to kind of talk about Jesus, Now, you can almost imagine sweat coming down from his forehead. You can imagine him kind of shaking, his knees a-knocking. And he's saying to himself, keep the focus on Jesus. Keep the focus on Jesus. Because he's afraid, see, that Jesus might start talking about him. But Jesus wasn't going to be distracted by the flattery of Nicodemus. You know, the same thing happens when Jesus meets with a woman at the well. Remember the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan. She's sitting, uh, she and Jesus are sitting at the well. And after v- various comments that are spoken, uh, Jesus then tells her, that he knows that she has five husband she has had five husbands, and the man that she's living with isn't her husband. He reveals that about her. And she is so unnerved by that, that she changes the subject. She doesn't want to talk about herself, you see. And so what she does, is she says, whoa, I perceive that you're a prophet. You Jews worship over on that mountain, and we, we Samaritans, we worship over on this mountain. What, what's she doing? She's talking, she's talking religion, we do that all the time in our, in our study groups or Bible studies or whatever. When things get, get too close to, to us, we, we, we kind of, well, I wonder what the Baptists think about this or the United Methodists or whatever. We, we, we start talking religion. Uh, we don't want to talk about us. We don't really want to be held accountable. We don't want God prying into our innermost uh, being. Um, you know, we hear a preacher talk about something that makes us a little bit nervous. What do we do? We say, oh man, Mary ought to be here to hear that or George or whatever. I mean, the point is we start thinking out there, somebody else rather than ourselves. So Jesus isn't going to be distracted by Nicodemus trying to change the subject to talk about him. He's going to bring it back home. And he tells Nicodemus, almost as if he understands what really is going on with Nicodemus. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. It, it's almost like he realizes that what Nicodemus is really searching for is this connection with God, this eternal connection, this kingdom of God. And so Jesus is going to talk about that. And he's saying, if you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to be in the presence of God, then you're going to have to be born from above. Now, most of us are used to, uh, if you've grown up in the church, you're used to hearing that phrase, you must be born again, right? Um, In fact, uh, this this translation is our New Revised Standard Version translation of that of that Greek word. The Greek word is Onathan, onathan. and it quite you know it it um, it can be translated uh, from above or again you can translate it both ways. You find it in the Bible in that way, but but the literal translation of the Greek word is "top." or above. So the New Revised Standard Version actually is a more literal translation of the Greek word. You must be born from above, rather than again. Now that word, onathan, appears in the Greek New Testament 13 times. Now if you take out the the two instances of that word right here in this third chapter of John, you take that out, now you got 11, right? 11 instances in the Bible eight out of 11, eight out of 11 instances, when you find that word, it is either translated top or above. So most of the time, a great majority of the time, the word is translated up there, not, not as again. I'll give you some examples. Remember uh when Jesus dies on the cross, remember the temple veil, the veil that kind of separates the holy of holies where the ark of uh, of the covenant is kept, where only the high priest can go only at certain times of the year, separates that from the rest of the people. That veil is torn in two when Jesus dies. And of course, the, the meaning is clear that Jesus has now taken away any obstacle between us and God. Well, when you read about that in both Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, you find the way they describe that is that the veil is torn from top to bottom. And the word top is onathan, So the veil is torn from up there to all the way down the bottom. And then the other inst- another instance, uh, so you kind of get a sense of how this word is often used in the Bible, um, when the soldiers are kind of going through Jesus's belongings at, at the foot of the cross, they come to his tunic. And what we learn from the scriptures from John's gospel in the 19th chapter, his tunic is all one piece of cloth. There's, there's no see, There's no seam. It's, it's seamless, it's, it's all one piece. And so they start gambling for it because they don't, it, number one, it's maybe hard to rip uh, because there's no seam, but also maybe they don't want to create a seam since there, there isn't one. And so they gamble over this tunic of Jesus. And in the 19th chapter, John's gospel, 23rd verse, we find that it is described as being woven from top to bottom as a single piece onethan to the bottom as a single piece. And then later in uh, James's epistle, in the first chapter, verse 17, James says to his readers that their gifts have been given to them from God. And he says, every perfect gift is from above, onethan onethan So those are just some examples. And you can see over and over again, the word onathan, born from above, it's really, really more appropriate to say from above as opposed to again. But it maybe, maybe the again comes from this notion that the top is sort of the beginning. You know, when you think of, well, we're going to, I'm going to have a column of numbers here. And the first number is at the top. And the last number is at the bottom, top to bottom first to last, you see. So being born again is like going back to the beginning, going back to the beginning of time when we were first created by God, the, the God who made us uh, from the very first moment that we took breath. So Jesus is saying, you want to see God? Do you want to, do you want to see the kingdom of God? Is that what you want, Nicodemus? then you must be born again. You you must go back to the top, you see. You must go back to the beginning. Well, Nicodemus doesn't really want to deal with what he knows is true. He knows what Jesus is talking about. He knows that Jesus is talking about a spiritual rebirth, if you will, to be born from above, from God, spiritual, as opposed to just being among all these colleagues of his that are just more concerned about people breaking laws and doing the right thing. You know, he knows what Jesus is talking about, but he, he kind of, he starts playing stupid. That's what, that's what he does. He, he, he says, <coughs> what do you mean? You mean, can I, can I go back and Enter my mother's womb? We we see that in verse 4. It says, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? You know, he's he's acting stupid. Of course he knows he can't do that. But he doesn't want to talk about what really is going on inside of his heart and inside of his mind. The, The thing that Jesus wants to talk about. So he talks about this stupid stuff you know my wife Cheryl says I do the same thing you know in, in other words whenever we have a discussion or an argument over an issue and I know she's right I act stupid you know I'll ask questions she's you know the answer to that why are you acting so stupid Well, she knows why I'm acting stupid because I don't want to I don't want to admit that what she's saying is right you know I've always said that whenever whenever I feel like I'm in a cloud, like I don't know what to do. You know, I've got to make a decision. And then i it feels like this cloud has descended and I just, there's so many options. That's always a sign I already know what to do. That's a sign for me. When I start confusing it with so many other things, when I start clouding my mind, I do it purposely so I don't have to admit what I already know. So I don't have to do what I know I need to do. It happens Almost every single time. I'd like to suggest maybe you consider that it happens for you once in a while as well. Well, Jesus all but calls them stupid. He says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you've got to be born of water like you've just talked about. You've got to be born out of the womb of your mother. But you also have to be born of the Spirit. You have to be born from God. You see, Jesus is not going to let them off the hook. He's saying, okay, you can talk about all your stupid stuff if you want, but I'm going to tell you the truth that if you really want to see God, if you want to see the kingdom of God, then yeah, you're going to have to have the physical birth, which you've already, that's already happened, but you're also going to have to have a spiritual birth as well. And then Jesus uses wind as a metaphor. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, what he's saying is, you want to be born of the Spirit, and you don't control the Spirit. It's like the wind. It comes out of nowhere, and it goes where you don't know where it's going. I mean, the wind cannot be controlled by you. Well, so it is with the Spirit. And that's Nicodemus, that's what you're afraid of. You're afraid of the Spirit coming into your life and taking control of you, and you don't like that. And that's why you want to talk about becoming a baby again, I guess. Well, being born from above is like becoming a baby again. Uh, That's Zoe. I started looking for a baby, and I said, why am I looking so far? I got one right here. (laughs) This slide, by the way, is a selfie. It really is. It's because I was babysitting her. She fell asleep, and I didn't have anybody to take a picture, so, so I took it anyway. That's That's off the subject. The point is, I want you to look at that baby, that little Zoe, only a f- couple of months old there, a few months. <coughs> well, that little baby is completely dependent upon her parents and other people, completely dependent. She cannot survive in this world by herself. She cannot fix breakfast. <laughs> she cannot drive to the grocery store. She can't do anything but just lie there and soak, soak, soak up the, the love that is given to her. She's dependent. She is not in control. She is subject to the care of other people. And that is the hardest thing for a man like Nicodemus to do to become dependent. He is used to being in control. He is used to having all the answers. He is used to being the the powerful one. And the thought that he has to become like a little baby again, he has to start all over again and let the wind take control of him, that is the hardest thing for this man to do in all the world. He can do a lot of things that are difficult, but this is all but impossible. That is the most frightening thing about death, is because death is the ultimate controller of us. We cannot stop its coming. When I go to the graveside to bury the, the remains of loved ones, <clears throat> I place my hand on the casket or the urn, the cremated remains, And I speak these words, this body we commit to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But to you we commit his or her spirit. That's what is difficult for Nicodemus, to commit himself to the spirit of God, to just let God take control of his life. That is what Nicodemus is most afraid of, losing himself. And that fear fear can become the greatest obstacle in our living as well. Jesus said, those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. That's Matthew 16, 25. In other words, if we're afraid to lose ourselves, if we're afraid to let go, then we will never be able to truly love. We will never, because we will never be able to truly love, we'll never really be able to live. We'll never really experience the life that God wants for us. It's all about letting go. And that is most difficult for those of us who are so used to being in control. We cannot learn to walk if we're afraid to fall. We can't learn to ski. When I, when I first took ski lessons many, many moons ago, one of the hardest lessons I had to learn was you have to lean down the hill. That did, that wasn't intuitive. That was like, no, I want to lean back, you know. No, you've got to lean down the hill. You've got to lean into the Into the fall, so to speak. And if you're afraid to fall, you'll never learn to ski. If you're afraid to fall, you'll never learn to ride a bike. I said that to Skylar. You know, she only recently learned to ride a bike, and that's one of the first things you got to get over is that fear of falling. For that matter, anything that has inherent danger in it. If if you're afraid to fail, if you're afraid to fall you're never going to learn that particular skill. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves, these words, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Now, ultimately, ultimately, it's not so much the fear of being vulnerable, being out of control. It's not the fear of death that is um, the thing that keeps us back from life. Ultimately, it's not the fear, but it's what we do with the fear. I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's really human nature to be fearful. I mean, I, I think um, it's not bad to be afraid. The, the question is, what are you going to do with your fear? Are you going to let that be the driving force in your life? Will you let it win? Will you let your fear have the last say? Or will you face it head on and give yourself away? That's what Christ is calling us to do. Lose our lives. Let go of our lives. Let go of the control. That's the only way we're going to learn how to love. And ultimately, that's the only way we're going to receive the love that God wants to give us. Jesus said to Nicodemus in that famous passage of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Believing in Christ, you see, is really about believing that we can lose ourselves in the love that God has given to us. In, in fact, the very gift of Jesus is an example of being vulnerable. It is God saying, I'm gonna come into the world and let you do with me what you will. And what did we do? We put him on a cross. Well, in so doing, he gives us an example of how we are to love. We are to let go of ourselves. As Jesus told Peter, he would one day be taken where he did not want to go. It is to be out of control. That is the way of love. That is the way of life that has no end. Let us pray. Lord, forgive us for allowing our fear of death to keep us from living. Help us to confront our fears and to walk out into the darkness and put our hand into your hand. And may you lead us into the light. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.